Today's show is brought to you by HANA. For the past few years, I've been taking HANA One, an all-natural daily superfood with 30 wild-harvested herbs and adaptogens to improve focus, boost immunity, and increase stamina. HANA also sources the purest, highest-quality ashwagandha and turmeric. To get 20% off your first purchase, visit HANA.com, that's H-A-N-A-H.com, and enter the code CHAMPION20. Hello and welcome to the Champion Conversations podcast, where my co-host, sports psychologist Jim Aframo, and I take you inside the mental game of high performers. If you've ever wanted to learn how elite athletes, coaches, creators, and entrepreneurs use their mindset to overcome setbacks, serve as great leaders and teammates, and achieve their full potential, then you've come to the right place. I'm Phil White, and we're glad you're listening today. Today's guest is Matthew Algio. He is an award-winning journalist and author. Matthew has reported from four continents, and his stories have appeared on some of the most popular public radio programs in the United States. He is the author of six books, including Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, The President is a Sick Man, and, most recently, All This Marvelous Potential, about Bobby Kennedy's 1968 tour of Appalachia. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, we're excited to uh, dive into a lot of the great books that you've written, and uh, maybe a good place to start is uh, with your book, Pedestrianism. Uh, Phil and I work with a lot of athletes, and uh, I'm a sports psychologist. So, you know, when I think back to the mid-late 1800s, I think about boxing, I think about horse racing, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think about baseball, but tell us a little bit about your book, Pedestrianism. And uh, it's amazing that most of us don't know that the first celebrity athletes were walkers. That's right. Yeah. I, I didn't know either um, uh, until uh, about, well, about 15 years ago, I was working on my first book, which was about the 1943 merger of the Steelers and the Eagles in the uh, National Football League. They became the Steagles for one season because the NFL was so short of players uh, because so many had gone off to World War II. So uh, I, I wrote this book about the you know this misfit team, the Steagles. But while I was researching it, I, uh, I, I went, went into the, the history of spectator sports in the United States and I was very surprised to find that really for, it was a fairly brief period, mid-1870s to, say, the early 1890s, competitive walking was the most popular sport, uh, spectator sport in the United States. People would pack arenas to watch men and women uh, walk in circles for up to six days. In fact, the most popular matches were the six-day walking matches. And in an arena like in uh, Madison Square Garden, the first version of Madison Square Garden in New York, you'd have 10,000 people in every night watching these guys walk in circles on a one-eighth mile track for hours and hours. And it was hard to believe, but a few different things happened that that sort of uh, led to this. And one was industrialization. People are moving into the cities. Cities are building public, big public indoor spaces for the first time. And uh, because the, the, the factories now have shift work, people are working around the clock, people have a little expendable income for the first time, too. It only cost about 10 cents to watch one of these walking matches. And so 
the, the stars aligned for the great competitive walkers of the 1870s and 1880s. And uh, they did. They became very popular, big heroes. Uh, Edward Payson Weston, very colorful uh, walker, always dressed up in a fine ruffled shirt and carried a cane. And then there was Dan O'Leary. He was the Irish immigrant from Chicago who moved his arms like pistons and carried corn cobs in his hands because they absorbed the sweat, he said. Anyway, these guys became hugely popular. Kids uh, would imitate their walk the way you might imitate a batter's batting stance in a, you know when you were when you were a kid playing baseball and uh it, it really was a really remarkable time in in american history and in sports history yeah i think uh dan o'leary was called the plucky pedestrian and uh yeah and at age 66 so i came across this he walked a mile at the beginning of each hour for 1000 consecutive hours i mean so we're talking like this guy was like the babe ruth of, of walking or i'm not and, sure what would be the yeah he was going i think into like the 1920s he would do walking exhibitions at minor league baseball parks where uh he would walk around the bases once while the fastest runner on the team would try to run around them twice so <laughs> he he kept it up right up until the bitter end and then he'd pass the hat literally uh, you know, people would put their nickels and dimes in, and that was his uh, that was his pension plan. Yeah, how how did this uh, uh, fade out before we kind of move on to? Uh, yeah, 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 a couple of things, and you mentioned uh, um, um, boxing, which was very popular. It was also sort of uh, kind of operated in a in a in a in a gray area legally, you know, um, and, and and baseball had a lot of problems. There was no. Um, uh, you know, the the National League didn't really become organized until 1876, and it really took about 10 years before before that really caught on. What really hurt, though, uh, competitive walking was uh, around 1884, uh, an Englishman invented what we call the safety bicycle, which is the bicycle we know today, right? With the two wheels and the drivetrain. Before that, they had the penny farthings, which were those bikes with the giant front wheel and the tiny little back wheel. Well, bicycle racing. I mean, if watching guys walk around the track at, you know, three miles an hour was exciting, <laughs> watching guys on bicycles at 20 miles an hour was, uh, you know, what would that be? Seven times as exciting. So uh, really bicycle racing kind of replaced uh, uh, walking almost overnight, especially in these long six-day races. In fact, they still do six-day races, uh, bicycle races uh, in Europe. It's especially popular in the Netherlands. So a lot of the walkers then just moved into the into the bike racing. But the old penny farthings, you know, those big bikes, they weren't very nimble. They're very hard to race. So it wasn't until uh, the invention of the modern bicycle that it kind of replaced walking as the as the main sport at that time. Yeah, it's fascinating. What is it about um, microcosm history and particularly unusual events um, within that history that that draw you in? Uh, first of all, it's 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 hard to find good stories that haven't been done, and uh, and 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 when you find one, you know you've got a good one when the deeper you dig, the more layers you find, more stories connected to that story. So in a story like pedestrianism, which on its face is a good story, that's fine. But you you really get into interesting issues of, you know, there was a great rivalry between the American and the British runners. So Anglo-American relations at that time were a, were a, a very interesting topic to look into. Uh, Dan O'Leary was an immigrant in Chicago. So you you have the 
really the history of Chicago and the Great Fire, and that had a big impact on O'Leary's life and on the sport itself. And and you have the fact of uh, immigration. Uh, O'Leary really was kind of like you know the Jackie Robinson for Irish immigrants in America at that time. Um, so I think when you when you find a story, a small story, what you're really looking for is all the other stories that are attached to that, you know, and really, you know, as soon as you begin the research, you say, oh, you know, because as soon as you come up with something like this, you're like, oh, my, this is going to be great. This is going to be great. And then eventually, you know, you get to a point where you realize, well, there's not much more to it than that. You know, really the, the idea, once you say, uh, you know, did you know competitive walking was the most popular sport in the United States in the 1890s? People go, oh, really? But you need a little bit more to hang on that. And then when you say, you know, the walkers were the first people featured on trading cards and the first to hit, first to get uh, product endorsements and the first to wear advertising on their uniforms. And, and then you, you, you get into all of those realms that are connected with it. I think that's what's interesting to me. I mean, that's what I'm looking for when I find those stories. And that's really the most fun. I mean, the fun part is researching these and, and having those aha moments where you're like, oh my gosh, that's, I never would have occurred to me that, you know, the, you know, New York Tribune was the first newspaper to sponsor an athlete, things like that. Once you that, that's, you know, those little nuggets of gold that you find in the research. And that I think is what, you know, makes a really good, you know, a micro history really fun. Yeah, absolutely. What about when you're writing about um, someone who we've both done books about, in your case, Harry Truman's Excellent Adventure, which I, you know, is a huge inspiration to me, both in terms of the form in the content for um, both our Supreme Task and Whistle Stop. So, you know, we I found a little slice within Truman's story that I felt like, you know, McCullough had a had a decent little chapter on it in, in his magisterial, you know, 900-page doorstop of a book in Truman, which is, you know, hard to beat. But, um, you know, I felt like there was this research division, these seven young men behind the scenes kind of feeding information to the campaign so that Harry could tailor his speeches to in each individual place. So that was kind of mm. my end once I stumbled across that. But what was it about Truman that you thought, oh, I... I'm not sure if if there's more than a line or two in in even the most comprehensive biographies about him. Yeah, I mean his his life is just endlessly fascinating. You know, I mean, I, I you could pretty much pick any day out of Harry Truman's life at random and pretty much get, if not a book, at least a pretty healthy article out of it. I mean, and uh, I I had uh, I, I guess I had heard of the trip. Uh, years and years ago. In fact, I know it was uh, 1998. It was the 50th anniversary of the 48 campaign. And I was working at a radio station in St. Louis and uh, which is Missouri Truman's home state. So we did a, we did a, a little audio documentary on the 50th anniversary. So I went out to the Truman library in independence to do some research there. And that was where I saw for the first time in the basement it felt like to me i'm not sure it was there but they had one of his cars and they had a in the display case they had a picture of his driver's license and one of his uh, gasoline credit cards and there was actually a picture from the road trip he took in the summer of 53 that the book is about and it said something like happy happy harry motoring east and 
there was just, you know, two or three lines saying after he left the White House, he did this trip. So that that was one of those that that really stuck with me, you know, that the incongruity of that, you know, he had been president, what, six months earlier. And now he's just driving himself back across the country. And again, it was one of those stories that, well, first of all, yes, you go to the McCullough book. What did he say? <laughs> you know, the first stop is how much did McCullough say about it? And I think it was in the proposal. It's like, there's only a paragraph about it in McCullough's book, you know, he barely, barely mentions it again, because Truman's life is so eventful. Like McCullough's like, who cares? He took a trip with his wife in the summer. But then as you go back and I, I looked and I started doing the research and especially, you know, a road trip book like that, it's, you, you know, it's kind of nice to like, you can go to each town and you can tell a little bit of the history of that town. Truman had a connection with so many of these towns. He had campaigned, of course, endlessly. So again, the automobile, uh, America in 1953, the development of the motel, it was just one of those stories that... Again, if you just say to somebody, did you know Harry Truman took a road trip with his wife and no secret service in 1950? Oh, that's interesting. And But if you also get into, well, you know that the hotel was just being, you know, the modern motor hotel was being invented by uh, the guy who invented Holiday Inn. And, uh, you know, we're just getting the the, the first uh, um, uh, interstate, you know, highways. The highway system is just being developed. The Pennsylvania Turnpike had just opened. You get into things like that. And then you get into the towns where he went and the people who were there. And I was fortunate at the time that I wrote the Truman book that were still a good number of people alive who had seen Harry on that trip. And, you know, it's the kind of thing people are delighted to talk to you about <laughs> if you knock on their door, or call them up on the phone. So uh, it, it, it was really a I thought it was a really good way to get into the Truman story and also a story that was really you know, kind of illustrate what kind of person he was. Yeah, it's fascinating too that uh, I thought that he was more of a success in business and I didn't know he was a war hero, but he was not a success in business and he was right. a war hero. And I think he wanted to go to, to West Point. Um, that, that's a fascinating story too with the, with the eyesight at the time, right? Was the, the thing that kept him Right, out. he couldn't, he, he wanted to go to West Point uh, when he graduated from high school and uh, yes, his eyesight was so poor that he wasn't able to meet the admission requirements uh, for that. So he ended up working at a bank in Kansas City, moved to Kansas City when he was uh, 19, I believe. And uh, he, I was just looking this up. I'm working on another Truman thing, and I just looked this up today, and I was reminded he moves to Kansas City uh, in 84, uh, so it would have been around 1903. And he works in a bank and he stays in a rooming house. It's a boarding house. And one of the other guys who works at the bank uh, also stays at the boarding house with him and they become uh, friends. And the guy's name is, uh, I believe it's Arthur Eisenhower. It's Dwight Eisenhower's brother. So Harry worked with Dwight Eisenhower's brother at a Kansas City bank in 1903. And then, of course, 40 years later would work with Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower. So just those little small intersections of history you find sometimes it, it, it really blows your mind. But yeah, Truman, just really uh, an amazing character, the last president who didn't go to college. Um, and really, you know, uh, somebody who I admire because Truman would say something along the lines, like if he walked into a room 
and realized he was the smartest guy in the room, he knew he was in a hell of a lot of trouble. You know, Truman knew if I walk in, if I'm the smartest guy in the room, we are in trouble. And I think that is uh, an excellent example for leadership. You know, that that is a sign of a good leader. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that was illustrative of how he was as a person, um, a couple of things. So first, he he kept this detailed mileage record um, of every <laughs> trip they took right and uh and then also he unlike president you know former presidents today with multi-million dollar book deals um and, and even more so speaking engagements you know i know the numbers from a certain former president uh from a, should we say a rather large university in the midwest and, and what they quoted <laughs> to the regents of that university plus the expenses and it's just you know, certainly more than most of us would make in a year, possibly combined. Whereas Harry, you know, if if he if he could get there and he could speak, then he'd you know maybe say, okay, well, I guess you could reimburse me for mileage, but he wouldn't take any money. Can you talk a little bit about both of those uh, things and how how they were illustrative of his character and who he was? Yeah, he he thought it was um, inappropriate to he would say commercialize the presidency. So uh, you have to remember, as you well know, when he got out of office in 53, they were not, he was not rich by any means. He had not accumulated much wealth before he entered politics and then and did not accumulate any uh, while he was in office. Bess's family, his wife had a little bit of money and they owned the house on, on Delaware in uh, independence. But uh, he, he steadfastly refused to take any position that was really just trading on his name. I think he had an offer for, uh, for a company to make a brand of soap, you know, Truman soap, stay clean with Truman, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, not to mention seats on corporate boards. He, he refused to take seats on, on um, corporate boards because he knew they, uh, they didn't want him. They wanted his office. They wanted the the president, you know, the 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 imprimatur, the the prestige of having a former president be on the board. And they didn't really care what he had to say about it. So he uh, he did. He 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 would not uh, take any uh, any lucrative offers. And in fact, fell into some uh, got into some financial troubles later in the fifties. And then it was in nineteen fifty eight uh, that Congress finally passed a presidential pension act that gave uh, retired. President's twenty five thousand dollars a year plus uh, free postage, and that was uh, that was good enough for Harry. He had a policy of answering every letter he got, so just the postage alone was a was a big deal for him to get that. You know, it's funny. Um, really, uh, the last ex president who who didn't uh, commercialize the presidency quite to the extent that they do now is Richard Nixon, who was one of Truman's bitter enemies. Uh, but Nixon, to his credit, um, he didn't accept seats on corporate boards either. It was really Gerald Ford who kind of ushered in this new age of, of uh, you know, taking seats on boards and getting big speaking fees. And then, of course, Ronald Reagan gave a series of speeches in Japan shortly after he left office for a lot of money. So it really changed. And, you know, the, you know, ex-presidents now have kind of become these little corporations unto themselves. Um, you know, they have staffs and offices and, uh, you know, travel budgets, um, um, all of that. And in a way, the, uh, the pension seems superfluous at this point. I think it's about $190,000, $200,000 a year, plus all the, you know, 
expenses such as office and staff and that sort of thing. So, uh, yeah, Harry was kind of the last president to, to leave office and uh, have to worry about money. Yeah, it's really fascinating. Um, moving on to another presidential story that I thought was interesting in so many different ways. The president is a sick man. Um, you reveal how how this journalist E.J. Edwards got the scoop about President Cleveland's secret cancer surgery. You know, with many many years as a reporter yourself, did you see a little bit of yourself in Edwards? Uh I guess a little bit, um, although uh, Edwards had guts. You know, it was it was pretty courageous of him to report this story. Cleveland had had the operation in July of 1893, which was April, May, June, about four months after he took office for his second term. A uh, serious cancer operation that had to remove most of the upper uh, upper left uh, palate. He had a tumor on the roof of his mouth, but he managed to keep it a secret because he had the operation on a friend's boat. Uh, but one of the doctors um, uh, had missed an appointment because he was doing the surgery and he'd have told another doctor. And long story short, this reporter, E.J. Edwards, uh, through a friend of a friend, heard about this and was able to confirm that Cleveland had, in fact, had this operation. So Edwards reported this uh, in September in the Philadelphia Press. He was a Philadelphia Press correspondent. And Cleveland's reaction, or the Cleveland administration's reaction, Cleveland himself never really directly addressed it, but his, uh, his uh, spokesman did, uh, Daniel Lamont, uh, and they denied outright that this operation had taken place. They just said... Uh, it was a dental problem, had a couple of teeth removed, uh, which was technically true if you, you know, he had two teeth removed, but also most of his upper palate, uh, but they didn't mention that. Um, so Edwards really uh, was vilified uh, by the Democratic papers. Uh, Cleveland was a Democrat and the Philadelphia Press was a Republican paper, notwithstanding that the report was true. You see a lot of similarities in today's media where uh, you know, a lot of uh, media outlets seem to have an agenda. Well, it was pretty explicit in the 1890s. I mean, that's why you still hear of papers called the Democrat or the Republican, because they were um, uh, uh, they were partisan uh, and they didn't they didn't pretend not to be. So the Democratic papers came out after Edwards uh, published this story and called him a cancer faker and a disgrace to journalism. And it uh, it really had a, a negative impact, I think, on Edwards' career. Uh, much later, one of the doctors published an article in the Saturday Evening Post to vindicate Edwards. So uh, Edwards really was one of the first investigative reporters in American journalism. Uh, and he certainly was published one of the most complete descriptions of a medical procedure performed on a president and without and that was released without the president's permission so really a couple of landmarks in journalism achieved by edwards when he got this scoop in 1893 and um i think it it really uh it, it was a kind of a test for american journalism um you know that edwards would would be able to report this first of all um and, and second of all that uh you know would he be believed and, um, you know, I guess it depended on who you were willing to trust, whether or not he would be believed. But it was really a remarkable episode in, in American, well, American history, but especially the American presidency and American journalism. 
Yeah, and wasn't he his one of his most memorable quotes was "Tell the truth." <laughs> so, yeah, it's really interesting about Grover because I love Grover, um, and I think he was uh, at heart was very principled, almost to a fault. Uh, and one of the one of the interesting things about Grover is that I think he when he was in a hole, he knew when to stop digging, right? So like in 1884, in his first election, it comes out that he fathered a child illegitimately. The papers back in Buffalo, his hometown, hear about this. Cleveland gets word that this is going to come out. And it was true. Um, He had. He had fathered a child with a woman out of wedlock, and he had provided for the child, et cetera, et cetera. So he was out of town, so he cabled his friends back in Buffalo and Famously, the the cable just said, tell the truth. And really, it's believed that by Cleveland being honest about what had happened, it it, uh, won him more votes than the the underlying offense cost him. So he he did have a reputation for being honest. And in a way, I think this operation that he decided he needed to keep secret, he thought that the you know, the country was going to go into financial panic at the time. There was terrible economic problems. Cleveland was afraid if it came to be known that he was sick, that it would just make things worse. So that was his justification. And it's almost like he had built up all this capital on being honest. And now he he was kind of cashing it in for this one big lie. And people were inclined to believe him when he said it didn't happen. And, uh, yeah, so he kind of used his reputation for honesty for this one big cover-up. That, to be, to be fair, was very successful. I mean, a lot of people didn't believe Edwards, and Cleveland went on, and uh, you know he died without the, the truth ever coming out. It wasn't until after he died before the full story became known. Yeah, it's fascinating, too, uh, just growing up as a kid, uh, loving baseball history. Uh, one of the interesting characters was Grover Cleveland Pete Alexander. And uh, so he must be the only president to have a uh, Hall of Fame baseball player named after him. Yeah, he was uh, he played for the Phillies uh, and I'm a I'm a Phillies fan. Um, and uh, what was it, it didn't Reagan played Grover Cleveland Alexander in a movie once. Hmm. Um and then he apparently one time he got confused and he, Tip O'Neill for some reason mentioned Grover Cleveland, the president once. And uh, Reagan said, oh, I played him in a movie once. And Tip O'Neill said, no, that was Grover Cleveland Alexander. Um, but yes, Grover Cleveland Alexander uh, was, of course, named after Grover Cleveland. And by the way, Grover Cleveland's first name was Stephen. Uh, Grover was actually his middle name. So he was Steve um, uh, until he, 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 he thought Grover sounded more distinguished. So when he became a lawyer, he switched to Grover. Yeah, that's amazing. There's gotta be, there's, there's gotta be other, um, I think it wasn't Rosie Greer. He was Roosevelt Greer. He was a football player. So there's, there's an athlete named after there a president. Go. There's gotta be, gotta be a couple out there. I'm yeah, sure there was like a, a guy who played, you know, you know, two games for somebody who was, you know, Martin Van Buren Hendricks or something. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, speaking of your kind of love of sports, you you mentioned that your first book was uh, was on the Steagles. Can you take us inside that story? You know, for, from how you came across it to what was it about it that that fascinated you, and obviously the period being around kind of mid World War Two. 
Yeah, uh, that was a lot of fun to do. I actually, in 2006, I was uh, working at uh, Maine Public Radio in Portland, Maine. Um, but I, I'm from Philadelphia originally, and I, I, I knew the, the story, the basic outline of the, of the story that the Steagles, <laughs> the Steelers and the Eagles had to merge during World War II. And then in 2006, they had the, uh, what would that be, uh, uh, 60th uh, reunion of the Steagles before a preseason game in Pittsburgh between the Steelers and the Eagles. And so I pitched a story to a public radio program in the States called Only a Game. Uh, just a basic story about, you know, the, the, the reunion. So I went to Pittsburgh and, uh, of course, the, the guys who were still around uh, attended the reunion. So I was able to interview a bunch of them. And uh, again, it was just that, you know, the, when you talk to them, it was, I mean, it was crazy. You know, Bucko Kilroy, a great, great football name. But Bucko was in the Merchant Marine, and he was able to get, basically get the weekends off to go play football. And then uh, after the football season, he would, he would be on convoy duty in the North Atlantic. I mean, it was some dangerous stuff. There was another guy who was active duty army who was stationed in, uh, in New York who would go to games. And, of course, a lot of the guys had, um, you know, had, had, had ailments that kept them out of the army. Uh, you know, perforated eardrum, um, ulcers, those sorts of things that uh, disqualified you from military service, but not from playing football. And there were so many layers to this one, too. It was life on the home front during World War II. It was how different uh, professional sports were at that time. Um, uh, uh, interesting stories about ration stamps and how they were able to find shoes for their kids. And it was just unbelievable stuff that it was kind of amazing. These, these guys, these people were still alive and you could talk to them and, and they, and they knew these stories and how different the game was at the time. Um, Al Wistert was a guy who I loved. I went, he was in Grants Pass, Oregon. Um, he, he died a few years ago. I, I, all the Steagles are gone now, I guess. I think Al might've been the last one, but he, uh, he played, uh, he had broken his wrist. He played at Michigan and broke his wrist um, and then had, they were afraid he would develop osteomyelitis, an infection of the bone, because it had never healed properly. And so that kept him out of the service. But uh, he was drafted by the Eagles in 43, uh, went to training camp, hadn't even known that the two teams had merged and uh, ended up uh, playing many, many years in Philadelphia. But he, he played both ways back then, the offense and defense. You didn't have separate teams for offense and defense. All 11 guys played the whole game. I think you could substitute three or four people. So it was such a different game. These guys, they weren't, you know, now football players are like 300 pounds on the line and stuff like that. It's like, no, these guys were kind of normal sized and incredible athletes because they had to play all 60 minutes of the game. So just the idea of how much the game had changed and what it had become and going to Pittsburgh and then there, you know, at the time it was a pretty new stadium, Heinz Field and, you know, these guys were playing in old baseball stadiums with dirt infields and stuff like that. Again, it you just, when you peeled back all the layers to it, there were so many stories uh, inside that story, how the draft worked, uh, things like that. It, it was just, it was just fascinating to research and a lot of fun to, to write and to meet those guys. They were a lot of fun. Yeah. One of the Steelers receivers had a blind, was blind in one eye. 
Yeah, Tony Bova. Yeah. Yeah. And he actually, uh, apparently, I think he, I think he's the guy he tried to fake his way. He, he worked, he, he was blind in one eye and had very bad vision in the other, but he could wear a contact lens, which was very unusual at the time and tried to sort of fake his way in and, you know, to get into the army to fake, you know, fake his way through the eye exam, but wasn't able to do it. And um, uh, what did, uh, 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 I think it was Dan Rooney, uh, the son of the owner, Art Rooney, said uh, he could hear the ball coming. <laughs> he couldn't see it. <laughs> he would listen for it and hear it. But, uh, yeah, it was really amazing, uh, you know, these guys. And, uh, you know, and, and you know, America, like, it, it, it was, again, sort of like walking in the 1870s and 1880s. Football during the war was kind of the perfect sport. It was on Sunday which was the one day people had off. I mean, during the war, you work six days a week, you got Sunday off and that was it. And at the time, the, you know, the football teams usually played in baseball stadiums. They were on trolley lines. People didn't have to drive and spend money on gas or, you know, rationed, you know, the tires were rationed, rubber was rationed, everything was rationed. So by being kind of centrally located and played on Sundays in in the fall, uh, you know, when the baseball season had ended even, it was really an opportunity for the NFL to, uh, you know, kind of showcase itself during the war. It was important, imperative on them to to, to stay, uh, keep the league alive during the war, and it really paid off on the other side. And they, they were a pretty decent team, weren't they? I think they 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 might have had a, a winning record, right? Yeah, yeah, they were five four and one, first winning team in the history of the Philadelphia franchise, just the second. And if they'd beaten Green Day, the Green Bay on the last day of the season, they would have they would have made the made the playoff game. So it was kind of amazing. It was kind of made the two coaches they so the Pittsburgh coach and the Philadelphia coach hated each other. <laughs> uh, Keesling, Walt Keesling was the Pittsburgh coach, and uh, uh, Greasy Neal was the uh, was the uh, Philadelphia coach. Greasy Neal had actually played for the Cincinnati Reds in the nineteen nineteen World Series that the the, the Black Sox scandal that the you know the the White Sox uh, through the series and yeah I think he had like he he hit three hundred in the World Series but ever everybody always joked at him and said yeah but they wanted you to hit the ball um, but he he coached the he coached the Eagles and uh, Keesling coached the Steelers they couldn't stand each other so they finally decided okay here's what we'll do um, uh, Greasy Neal will coach the offense when we're on offense and Walt Keesling will coach the defense when we're on defense. And uh, that was really the beginning of the system that they have in place now in the NFL, where you have a defensive, you know, a head head defensive assistant coach and a head offensive assistant coach. And and again, I thought it was like a really clever um, solution to kind of a leadership problem, you know, uh, and that they were able to compromise and agree on this. I think uh, you know really spoke highly kind of with both of them. Yeah, it's it's an amazing book too, with the just the web of history. Um, I believe that you wrote that one of Pittsburgh's players uh, is it Ted Doyle. Uh, yeah. So he was a some he he was a small part of the Manhattan pro he, he, yeah. Manhattan project uh, to build the atomic bomb. Uh, right. He was he's that? working. He was working at the Westinghouse factory because again it was Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. Most of the players lived in Philadelphia. The team was based in Philadelphia, but there were a couple of players who were still in Pittsburgh. Ted Doyle was one of them, and he had a job working at the Westinghouse factory. And it was actually, he was not able to get, you couldn't leave your job during World War II. There was no quitting. You had to get permission to leave your job, and it was very hard to leave your job. 
And uh, so Doyle wasn't able to leave his job. So he actually worked in Pittsburgh all week. And then Friday night, he'd take the train to Philadelphia or wherever they were playing, uh, do a practice on Saturday, Sunday afternoon, play the game, and Sunday at night, take the train back to Pittsburgh. And uh, I actually met Ted in Nebraska. Uh, he was he was in his 90s at the time, but still sharp as a tack. And uh, yeah, he told me that later he learned what the Westinghouse factory uh, his his division in the factory was making was actually components for the first nuclear bombs that were used in World War II. Uh, as he told me, he had no idea what the hell he was making. <laughs> he just told him, you know, you put this widget in that widget. Um, but later on, he found out that, uh, yeah, he had actually contributed to the Manhattan Project. Yeah, like you said, it's the the layers and these little gold nuggets and as you said to the the personal connections you make with the interviews of folks that are you know um some of them now passed um what would you say the most so those can be some of the most fun parts of of a book process but what would you say are a couple of the most challenging pieces for you personally and has that changed over time since you did your first book yeah um I, you know really i think the writing I enjoy the research more than I enjoy the writing. Um, I think, you know, kind of organizing everything is is more fun. And then having to connect it all together is the challenge for me. I, I will say one thing that has gotten so much easier, like for the for the Stiegel's book, and that came out in, um, I guess, 2006, I went to the Library of Congress and I went to the library in Philadelphia and I went through the microfilm for all the local papers and in Pittsburgh and had to, you know, Xerox every page. And now all of that stuff is online. All of it. You just go to newspapers.com and buy a subscription and do a keyword search for Steagles. Spend hours, days just scanning through every newspaper. So, you know, the the research uh the research part of it has changed a lot, no doubt. I mean, it just, it's still amazing. I mean, I'm in Sarajevo and I can, you know, I can, I can research so much more online now than, than what is, than you would have even dreamed about 10 years ago. Um, yeah. The difficult part, you know, the difficult part is um, trying to organize the information in a logical way. And then, you know, linking all those pieces together. I find a lot of times when I'm writing, what I'm doing is I'm writing, writing chunk here and a chunk there, something I'm interested in. If I just found out something and I'm moving around, moving around, moving around, and, you know, eventually you'll get, you know, 20, 30,000 more and you're getting there, you're getting there and you're, you're getting close. But when you get to the end, the hard part is, okay, now we have to make that a, a, a straight through, a, a, a line straight through from the first word to the last word. And how do I do that? It's almost like you have the rat maze, you know, the mouse trying to get the piece of cheese at the other end. And you have all these, you know, side routes you take with all your, you know, your great little side stories that you've learned on the, on the way. Hey, here's the history of the steam locomotive. Oh, great. You know, I've done 300. 50 words on that. Uh-oh, now I got to get back to 1958 in Philadelphia, something like that. So I think just connecting all the pieces, which is, I guess, what writing is, you know, you're just connecting all these pieces. Uh, that's the hardest part for me. But I, I, I really enjoy the research. And, you know, I, I actually do. I like the writing. I mean, 
I'm, I'm working on a project now and I always find like, if you, if you're writing, if you've been putting off writing something, if you've, you know, you, you just haven't felt like doing it. If you're just not in the mood for it, a lot of times you'll go finally realize maybe the reason I'm not in the mood to write this is because it's probably not worth writing about. It's really, maybe it's not that interesting. If I'm not that interested in it, if I'm not that interested in doing the research or the writing about it, then probably people who read it aren't going to be that interested in it either. You know, I mean, sometimes you have to, you know, you have to give people the, you know, the cod liver oil or whatever the, there is information that you have to include that, you know, you can't, you know, in the, in the Grover Cleveland book, I had to get into the gold standard, right? I mean, all you got to do is say those two words in people's eyes, like glaze over, you know, it's an obscure 19th century debate that we had about what should our money be based on. And you try to, you know, you try to juice it up a little bit and, and um, you know, make it interesting. But uh, sometimes you just got to, you know, plow through and, and, and get it done. And if it's really, really boring, probably it's not worth, uh, it's not worth keeping in the book. But sometimes you got to find a way to, to keep some stuff in, even if you're like, uh, I don't know how interesting I could make this. And I'm not sure. I'm not sure it fits. Yeah. Um, have have you developed techniques to, to be able to focus over the years and particularly the way things are now, you know, these little devices that can ding and beep at us 24 hours a day if we let them. Um, it's kind of the kryptonite for a lot of writers and creators. Yeah. What are some ways that you, you're able to carve out um, focus, get into flow state, this kind of thing? I, I, I will say that um, by virtue of my wife's occupation, She's a foreign service officer, uh, an American diplomat. So we, we move a lot. So I have really developed a pretty good ability to be able to work just about anywhere under any, you know, circumstances pretty much. Um, deadlines are very helpful. <laughs> you know, when you have a deadline, you've, you've, that's a good incentive. Um, but when we joined... Um, the first book, the Steagles book I wrote, uh, when we were in Washington, but since then we've, we've been in, uh, Bamako, uh, which is in Mali, West Africa. Then we were in Rome and then we were in Mongolia. Um, and then we were in, uh, Maputo, Mozambique. Now we're in Sarajevo. So I, you know, I see sometimes like in, writers magazines or on websites, they'll have pictures of like the data, you know, where they write, you know, and I think it's uh, just David McCullough has the little cabin that looks on the lake and he's got his typewriter and everything there. Right. You know, and I'm like, you know, I'm at the airport in Singapore, like trying to get it done or, you know, I'm, I'm wherever we are. So I, I mean, I, I think all writers, you know, suffer from the, distractibility factor and uh i'm no different but i i think when i when i really am interested in what i'm doing and 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 um i I, it's it's easier for me to do i I think it's sometimes like it's like you know when you agree to write a book like a project that long it's sort of like this is you're going to be dating this girl for two years right you're going to be you're going steady you better like them 
you know, you're taking them to the prom for the next two years. So I, when I do a, when I get a story, I really have to make sure like, okay, yes, I can live with this for two years and I'll be interested in this for two years and I'll be motivated to work on this for two years. And I have that somewhere, you know, you have that burst of excitement at the beginning of the project and then you get into it a little bit and you're like, I, I don't think I want to, I want to live with this for two years. So it's important to, you know, being interested and, and, uh, you know, happy with the project you're working on is, is a pretty good motivation, a way to keep distractions at bay, I think. Tell us about uh, dating Robert Kennedy. Um, <laughs> one of my, one of, I loved reading, uh, was it a walk in the woods by Bill Bryson and um, right. the Appalachian trail. And, and uh, we started out this conversation about uh, power walking and walking long distances. I wasn't aware about Robert Kennedy's. You have a great book about uh, his own adventures in, in the Appalachians. Can you, can you tell us about that a little bit? Yeah. Um, that was a, I, I really enjoyed researching that book and uh, Eastern Kentucky. So, so Kennedy, basically, you know, Robert Kennedy did a couple of these people called them poverty tours where he'd go and visit very poor parts of the country. He had gone to the Mississippi Delta in, I think, 63. And then in uh, early 68, February 68, he went to Eastern Kentucky for three days and traveled all around and met with people and held hearings. He was a senator at the time. And so the book is really recounting that trip, but also talking to the people that he met at that time and seeing kind of how their lives had turned out and how Appalachia had and had not changed in the in the 50 years since then. Um, so yeah, it, it, unfortunately the book came out in March, 2020, which was not great timing for, uh, for launching your book because that was just when COVID, uh, COVID hit. Um, so I didn't get to do a lot of the, a lot of the events I wanted to do in, in uh, Kentucky. I hope to do them after we move back to the States in July, but it was another one of those interesting stories where, uh, you 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 look you scratch the surface and you find all these fascinating stories and Kentucky has no shortage of fascinating stories from labor history you know coal strikes environmental issues labor issues politics are fascinating it's just a such an you know intrinsically fascinating part of the United States that it it you know it was it was hard it really that was one of those where there was stuff I just couldn't I couldn't couldn't put it in the book. I didn't have room for some of the stories that I that I uh, found out while I was researching that book. And of course, it's such a you know uh, sad, you know sad time in America. It was you know Kennedy was assassinated um, exactly um, uh, March, April, May, four months later. Um, and this was right before he was announced. He had, he was hadn't yet announced whether he was going to run for the nomination. So. Everybody was waiting with bated breath. What will Kennedy do? And so this poverty tour he took turned into like a, a big press event, the national press from all over. And, you know, you had people in in Kentucky who were kind of embarrassed that all these national reporters were coming to see how poor they were. And then other people who were like, yes, let's show them what it's like here, you know, so we'll get some assistance. And um you know, there there was a lot of assistance that went into the area. Whether it not it was effective, it's it's hard to say. But uh, you know, it's funny in in uh, in Kentucky. Um, you know, Johnson carried Kentucky, the Democrat, 
by a ton in 64. And then uh, then Nixon barely carried it in 68. And then pretty much after that, it became a, a Republican state. So you also sort of had that, you know, you're, you're seeing the kind of the change in the parties at that time, sort of the positions and the composition of the party changes. So yeah, just again, one of those stories, there's just so much interesting stuff uh, under the surface when you, when you start digging. How much um, did, did your reporter days play into that moment where you thought, you know, this is a good story to report on, but there's a, there's a bigger one to tell here. And how well did those, some of those skills set you up for, for what was to come um, from the Steagles book onward? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it helps to have a good instinct for what's a good story. Uh, but probably even more important is being able to uh, find uh, the sources, the people you want to talk to, and then uh, convincing them to talk to you, which is sometimes easier and sometimes harder. So definitely having a reporting background is extremely helpful in that. I mean, the hard thing for me was to make the adjustment, and I've been in radio, and uh, radio, you know, uh, in a four-minute story, I don't know what would that be. You know, a thousand words—that'd be a—that'd be a long story on the radio to hear somebody talk for a thousand words. Um, you know, and then you get into the realm of oh, I have this, like seventy thousand words. But again, when you break it down, it's you know, it's like well, think of it as you're just going to write seventy thousand-word stories, you know, or thirty-five, uh, you know, two thousand-word stories. I mean. If you break it down into manageable chunks, it's much easier to do. So that's kind of been my my MO. I guess if you know, in my books will have much more than just the main story. <laughs> you know, I and I, I I joke like you know, with the Steagles book, I would joke, you know, every it would begin like, you know, the Steagles season opened on November 5th, 1943. But the history of sports goes back to Roman times. <laughs> and then we would fill five pages with the history of sports from, you know, Rome till 1943. So I, I try not to not to lean on that too much. But again, there, if, if the stories are there, um, you know, they're worth investigating. And the reporting on, you know, first person accounts is is really, uh, really the fun part. I think the part where you know, just, just knowing how to find people and then how to approach them. Yeah. You mentioned, um, something that I thought was fascinating and I agree with you, um, because it's how, how I operate as well. And, and Jim too, with, with regard to deadlines, because I know for some writers or creatives, deadlines are kind of the thing that stresses them out most. Whereas you've said it almost, ha- it's helpful to know what what game day is or what your Olympic final day is and to work backwards from there for those two, three, four years. Can you talk a little bit about how, how you frame deadlines as more of a positive than a negative and more of a kind of uh, thing to, to keep you G'd up and moving along versus this crushing burden that some people might feel if they're, if they're not used to working with deadlines? Yeah. And this might be an instance where, I mean, I I don't know, but I think working in radio and working in daily news um, was very helpful when you had deadlines. Uh, When I was at Maine, we did a half hour daily news program, Maine Things Considered, uh, still on, great program. 
Uh, but a half hour of news that you had to come up with by 5.30 every night. You know, we had a staff of reporters and everything. But in Maine, you know, there's some pretty slow news days in the winter. And you're, you know, you're doing stories about people's 40-year-old pet turtle or something. And so, you you know, the the idea of the, the deadline, you know, if, if you're – yeah, you know, if you have a a, um, a phobia of death for deadlines, that's probably not the best place. The best place to work is a daily news shop, and so, you know, getting a deadline that's that's you know a year away. I'm like, I don't. Why would anybody worry about that? Because you, you know, it it because it's going to get done, just like the daily news show is going to get done. And then I have targets. I mean, I definitely have have uh, you know word count targets, or at least like. How I, uh, you know, how confident uh, I want to be able to know always that I'm going to meet the deadline. So, for instance, I have a book I'm working on right now. So, 70,000 words due December 1st. Well, I haven't been able to do a ton of research because libraries have been closed because of COVID for two years. You can't get into archives. So, I'm kind of doing everything outside that that I can do now, you know, and I'm up to like 36, 40,000 words. And my goal is, you know, get up to like 50 or so, you know, and that 20,000 is going to be all the stuff that I'm going to need to get at the end. But that'll be relatively easy. In fact, if anything, I'll get more than that and have to cut other stuff from the other thing. So, uh, you know, another strategy is if you have to do like a 70,000 word book, well, to write a good 70,000 word book, start with a 90,000 word book and <laughs> cut out the 20,000 bad words. Like, uh, you know, how to, how to make a, you know, a million dollars in, in, in radio is start with 5 million. So it's kind of the same, the same concept in, in, in writing. I think if you're, if you're always um, kind of overshooting the mark a little bit along the way, then you'll get there. But look, if you just sit on your butt and don't do anything for 12 months, just, nobody's going to be able to write a 70,000-word book in two weeks. It's just, it's just not going to happen. How much fun was it writing about Abe and his dog, Fido? That, uh, <laughs> what a fantastic book, and what a, what a neat idea. How would you come up with that? And tell us a little bit about that book. That was actually what I was researching, the Truman book. I stopped at the Springfield, uh, the library, the Lincoln Library in Springfield, and um, they had a, one of the, the only, I think there are two or three actual photographs, like the original photographs of Fido, who was Lincoln's dog. And I was like, Fido? It's like, yes, that was the Ur Fido. That was the original Fido. That was the, the archetype for Fido. Um, and, and really, it was interesting. Again, then you looked at Lincoln and animals and his, his, his relationship with, you know, the treatment of animals was so out of touch with the times. I mean, so, so, um, you know, progressive for what, you know, what it was like in the first half of the 19th century, the way horses were treated, the way farm, you know, livestock was just terrible, terrible, terrible. So it sort of became the history of the animal welfare movement. I mean, you know, a Lincoln was, was at the vanguard of that movement. And in the second half of the 19th century, you see it really change. And again, it's one of those stories where Lincoln is just, you could write so much about him. And it was just a little tiny part of Lincoln's life that because so much eventful stuff happened in this guy's life, who's going to write about his dog. But then again, when you look at all the other stories around that, there really seemed to be something there. So it was an interesting way to approach, you know, the Lincoln story. 
Yeah, you mentioned um, obviously geeking out on the research as we all do and, and the personal connections you make through the interviews. Is um, What else with that part that you mentioned at the beginning of the process where you kind of filter it a little bit to see, okay, is there enough here? And then like, you're like, yes. And, you know, you have the the supernova goes up and um, that you, you hope to harness that enthusiasm, at least for the few month, the first few months of diving into the research. What, right. what else about the process of, of long-form storytelling excites you to this day? Well, I, I think it is finding a story that, you know, you think is, oh, okay, this is, could, might be an interesting 1,500-word, you know, I don't know, article for Atlas Obscura or you know, White House History Magazine, and then, and then you get into it, and then you really find out, wow, there's just so much more in here than I could ever hope to get into, a, you know, a two or 3,000 word article. Um, and then, you know, then you really begin the work of seeing, okay, um, is it here? Is it there? You know, work on the, is, to, is, this, is this worth a proposal? I mean, that's the beauty of nonfiction, that we have the advantage that we don't we don't have to write the whole thing. You know, we can, we can sketch it out. We do an outline, a proposal, a sample chapter. It gives you a chance to, to find out whether or not it, you know, there's something there, uh, you know? And, and so I think through that process, you, you kind of naturally reach a conclusion about whether or not, you know, whether or not it's there. Um, this, book I'm working on right now began as an article I did for White House History Magazine. And it was, um, it's about when uh, Truman and Picasso, uh, Harry Truman, uh, the book is called uh, When Harry Met Pablo, uh, Modern Art, McCarthyism, and the Day Truman and Picasso Went Sightseeing. Because Truman in 58 took a trip to Europe, just a vacation, but he met with Pablo Picasso one day and Picasso and his, well, it wasn't his wife, but, and uh, Harry and Bess went sightseeing in the south of France for the day and went to Antibes and Valerie and they saw Picasso's studio and went to one of the museums where his stuff was. And uh, this began as an article for um, the magazine, but as I researched it, there were just so much about modern art during the Cold War and how uh, conservative Republicans in Congress wanted to defund museums that promoted modern art because they regarded all modern art as communistic and modern artists were communists. And so it was kind of a flashpoint in the, in the culture wars, really one of the early flashpoints. And Truman hated modern art. Um, but I think uh, one of the reasons he met with Picasso was because he he hated modern art, but he didn't think any of it. He didn't think it should be censored. He didn't think the government should have any say about what artists do and what they create. And so, by meeting with Picasso, he was sending a definite signal that even though he personally thought it was ham and eggs art—that's what he called it—that um, uh, that it was important that artists' right to create was protected. You know that it was sacred, sacrosanct. And so, again, this is one of the one of the cool things about Truman is that his own personal taste, just, just because he didn't like something, didn't mean he couldn't appreciate the value in that thing. And that's such a, that's a hard thing to do. And that's a really hard thing to do sometimes 
especially when you're in politics, uh, especially when you're president. And so I just think it's really kind of a, an interesting demonstration of, of you know, what, what Truman's character was like. But I'm, I'm getting off topic. The, the, the point being that once you start this again, see, but that's it. I guess that's a good example for <laughs> my long-winded answer to show that like, oh, this was just a little article. Oh, he met Picasso. That's weird. But then when you looked at it more and more, that's when you realize, ah, maybe there's something more here. Yeah, I love how you follow your bliss and see where it takes you. It's, it's, it's. Uh, your books are a discovery process as, as much as you know, kind of having a, uh, uh, an idea of exactly where you want to go. Um, what, what other, what tips, uh, tools, techniques would you share with, uh, you know, creators with, with others interested in peak performance, um, to, to, you know, on the path to mastery in their own profession. Um, you know, I guess the best examples would be not so much, you know, my, my own experience. I think everyone's, you know, everyone's journey is obviously it's, is, is different. Uh, I look at some of the people I've written about and I, I, I try to find some inspiration from them. Um, I, I, you know, Grover Cleveland, I mentioned, uh, a, a man of incredible principle, um, even sometime to his detriment. I think he really believed it was the right thing to do to keep his operation secret. Um, I sometimes think if he had come out and said, hey, I had cancer and people were so scared of cancer at that time that it might have made a difference. But he, you know, he, he, he stuck by his principles. And he also, as I said uh, earlier, you know, when he, you know, when he was in the hole, he knew when to stop digging. Um, I, and I look at Truman and, and his attributes, you know, his ability to lead um, but not by showboating, you know, I, I think sometimes you need, he, you know, he was in a way, he, you know, he wasn't bombastic. He was a quiet leader, you know, I mean, he was kind of crass sometimes, um, it, you know, and I think when I, when I work on my projects, I have the luxury of being able to choose these. And I think the important thing is you if you really, you know, you do have to be passionate about it. I'm sorry, but it's it's a cliche, but it's absolutely true. It's like I said, if you're, you know, to commit to a project that's going to take two years of your life, first of all, you're lucky if you get the financial resources to do it in the first place. Second of all, as I said before, it's like you're you're making a commitment, man. There's there's somebody's joining the family here for two years, you know get used to hearing a lot about Harry Truman at the dinner table. You know, my poor wife, she's, this is her second, second tour with Truman, uh, with this book. So you, you, you really, if you don't, you know, to, to create, you, you just have to be, um, you, you just have to, you just have to really into it. You have to be passionate about, it. you really have to want to do it. You can't just like the idea of doing it. You actually have to like the doing it. It's really interesting this project with the Picasso Truman thing is I'm really for the first time reading a lot of biographies about artists and how Picasso operated Duchamp. Um, and these were people who were so, I mean, talk about taking risks. They, you know, to there were hundreds of years of academic art where perspective 
was all that mattered were realism. You know, you wanted to see those faces up on that canvas and feel the feel the warm air from their breath on your face. And suddenly they said, no, let's let's represent people by shapes that, you know, that 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 represent all the perspectives on all 360. I mean, that was a pretty radical idea, you know, in 1909. Um, but they clearly, I mean, you could say what you want about Picasso, he did not have a deficit of passion for, for what he was doing, you know? So, you know, he had the combination of talent, uh, I mean, and, and, and passion, but that, that belief, there's just nothing, nothing, is going to compensate for that if you if you don't really want to do it. You, if you don't really want to do it, it's just hard to fake it. It's just you can't do it. You really have to want to do it. Yeah, I, I love the the passion piece and and the courage to to follow your passion. Um, the combination I yep. think is key. Um, what uh, what what is the you know given all of your success and and and. Uh, and great work. What what is the most challenging thing for you right now, um, as you know, what I would call a, a you know a pro guy or a veteran, um, in terms of your work? Um, well, I, the the obvious challenge right now is COVID because the you know the the Truman Library has been closed for two years now, um, and I, I would think um, you know it, finding finding good stories. There's so much content now. There are so many venues for people to get stories out, which is fantastic. I mean, um, but it's not just going to see if David McCullough wrote, you know, five pages about it. It's as a, you know, is there a podcast about it? Is there a, you know, an article about it? Is there, you know, there's so many different venues that people have um, to, to, to publish their stories and, which is which is fantastic, uh, but it it makes it harder to you know to just find those those little nuggets. Um, you know, it's always that feeling, and I'm sure you know Phil knows it. Probably you both do when you get a great idea, and then you go like your your heart's beating as you do the Google search to see if it's been done already. You know, and then inevitably uh, uh, the book was written two years ago. You know the book about the psychic detective horse I always wanted to do. Um, So, so it it gets harder and harder, I think. And, and there's so much more competition now. It's just competition for, you know, a lot of people, there's self-publishing people can publish, you know, books on their own. There's um, competition for promoting your books, for getting in venues and getting events at bookstores and, uh, and uh, getting on podcasts or radio programs. I mean, there's so much content, content, content. There's so much content um, in, 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 in the atmosphere right now that it's very competitive and it's, it's, it's hard to get your voice heard. Yeah. It's kind of that. um, It's almost a paradox in some ways of it's easier than ever before for people to, to speak their mind in, in short form. Um, and there's, you know, an abundance of, of ways to get it out, as you said. But um, there is a difference between maybe story and content in some ways, do you think? Yeah, you're you're right. And I, I don't want to. Yes, you're right. Um, and I don't I don't want to sound bitter. No, I, I, I just I don't think all 
content is good or necessary. I, maybe that's a, that's a, um, you know, a heresy. Um, and I do think sometimes that we, we, we miss the editors. We miss, you know, the, the gatekeepers. I think it, it's, it's harder for people to, to find the good content now and to wade through the, the mediocre content. And I, th- I do think sometimes it makes it harder now for people. I mean, it's just attention spans are shorter. It's harder to get people to read a book. You know, it's, it, I, it's just the longer, longer form uh, storytelling is, is, is a harder sell than it used to be. I mean, 20 years ago or even 10 years ago, probably even five years ago, it's just, it's, it's a lot harder to convince people to invest that much time into a single, a single topic, you know, when they're switching, my daughter's nine, she's got devices everywhere, you know, it's just, it's going to be harder to say. And I, we like last weekend, we were like, you know what, we're going to sit we're going to watch bed knobs and broomsticks. We're going to watch a 90 minute movie, sit here, no devices, just look at whoever thought there'd be a time when parents would be encouraging you to watch television for an hour and a half, but, you know, just to keep your focus yourself for that long. Um, So yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's getting harder, I think for longer, longer form storytelling. Yeah. Maybe, um, on the other side of it, that books in, it could be part of the antidote to this. Um, what is it called? Continuous partial attention. I think one sociologist right. termed it. Um, there's a great book, um, I believe by Marianne Wolf called Reader Come Home, where she just dives into a lot of different facets from everything from neurobiology up um, or down. And uh, yeah, just the benefits of that that reading right. session daily and making it part of your routine and everything. Uh it could be maybe the cure for what ails us as a society in some ways. Yeah, it's hard because you're, you, you have to balance the fact that this is what the future is. The future is the phone and the little computer in your hand. I mean, you can't just say, no, you, you can't touch any devices. I mean, devices will be part of our lives for the foreseeable future. Um, but yeah, at the same time, you have to, you know, retain the ability to sit and absorb information over long periods of time. I don't know what college is like these days, but you know, I think it's pretty hard. It must be hard for young people when they go to college to suddenly have to read a book, you know, from beginning to end. Uh, you know, Pride and Prejudice, or uh, you know, uh, any classic book. Really, I mean, it's 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 going to be a challenge, and I'm very cognizant of that. With my daughter, is like she she does read old-fashioned books always when we go to bed that's what we're going to read yeah that's good um what is it about book book right both reading books and writing books that for you personally will still continue to be a, a central part of your of your life and of your profession yeah well i i i love um having the physical books i we just did our taxes i forget what my deduction from uh uh, ABE used books this year was like eight hundred or nine hundred dollars. Um, I I just find it much easier for me to 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 find the information that way, just because that's the way I've done it for you know the past 15, 20 years is to have my books organized by subject. Um, I've also 
fairly recently I've I've made an effort to start reading stuff, maybe at bedtime, maybe on the weekend, that's completely unrelated to whatever I'm researching. And try to read different kind of writing, to read more fiction. You know, I find especially when, you know, if you're working in nonfiction, narrative nonfiction, long form nonfiction, you're just constantly reading uh, uh, nonfiction. And so you're you you get into a real fiction deficit. So I'm I'm trying to read more, uh, read more fiction. And um and yeah, I I I just I I just like the process. I like the whole process. I like the the way that that you go through the copy edit and you figure out the photographs and where they're going to go and you know you get the proofs in your hand and you print them out and make the corrections and that the whole process of the production is just so much more satisfying i think than you know when you hit a button and it publishes on your blog spot or whatever the blog is it's just a it's just you know there's something tactile about it that appeals to me yeah, wonderful. Well, speaking of that bedtime, I know we're we're coming up to your daughter's bedtime. We don't want to want to interfere with the nightly ritual, but this has been fantastic and and really a treat for us as both book writers and book lovers, and for anyone who who either enjoys a good book or just is fascinated about the creative process. So, thank you. Um, in closing, Matthew, could you tell people where they can keep up with both your your shorter form and longer form projects and uh, other musings that you may have? Sure, sure. Um, I'm on Twitter at Malgeo. That's uh, M A L G E O, and uh, Malgeo.net is my website. So uh, check that out. I keep it pretty up to date with uh, articles I've done and. Um, yeah, yeah. Keep keep your eyes out for this uh, this uh, Truman Picasso book. It's supposed to come out at the end of 2023, but please, fingers crossed, everybody, that the Truman Library reopens in the yeah, next couple well, months. I've spent many uh, a Saturday there myself, as you know. So yeah, definitely agree yeah. with that one. And uh, and it's a great. It's such a great library. It is so helpful, and I I just and it's going to be. It's interesting to think. You know, that it's not just the Truman Library. So many research libraries have been closed for so long that we've really lost like two years of historical research uh, in, in, in America, really in the world. So it's, you know, I'm also afraid there's going to be this backlog. There's going to be crowds waiting to get into the get into the archives when they finally reopen. Yeah, you'll have to jockey for position and uh, like yeah, the exactly. Steagles a- figure out a, a, a couple of new blocking techniques maybe. <laughs> exactly get out of my way well this is thanks been, you guys this has been great yeah. this was fantastic thanks, Matthew. Yeah. thank yeah. you so much I really enjoyed it thanks for joining us if you enjoyed this episode please tell your friends about the champion conversations podcast and rate review and subscribe to the show on apple podcasts spotify or your platform of choice you can also follow jim on twitter at gold medal mind Go out and be a champion today, and we'll see you back here next week.